You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the Associate Pastor for Christian Education. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you and what we have to share. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and thoughts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture passage for today picks up in the middle of a private conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has just acknowledged that he is the Messiah, the anointed king through whom God will deliver God's people. We can imagine that the disciples associate this title with earthly glory. They've witnessed miracles, heard Jesus teach and preach with authority, and experienced the crowds swarming to see him. Understandably, they're expecting big, glorious things ahead. Then here, in the middle of Mark's narrative, Jesus lays out the truth plainly. Reading from Mark chapter 8 beginning with verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was walking out of the Grandin Village co-op the other day with our daughter, Eleanor. As we approached the car, she looked up and saw the cross at the top of the Heights Community Church steeple. And she said aloud what she says every time she sees a cross. Jesus died on the cross. She says it when we walk into Kirk Hall and see the big wooden cross that Ralph Baker and Buster Jones made. Jesus died on the cross. And she says it whenever she sees the shape on road signs or churches we drive past. Truly, 
It sounds strange to hear her sweet little nearly three-year-old voice say it aloud with her soft R's and a tone of sadness way beyond her wee years. Jesus died on the cross. As her mother and as a pastor, I worry that soon her friends or preschool teachers will think she's a little macabre. I mean, she's not wrong. Jesus did die on the cross. But it's a dark line to hear a three-year-old say aloud. I'm always quick to remind her that the cross is empty. I follow up with a, yes, dear, Jesus died on the cross, but that's not the end of the story, is it? God made Jesus alive again. Jesus died on the cross, but God made Jesus alive again. Despite our mother-daughter call and response, she's always hung up on that one line. Jesus died on the cross. Lent is the season. We are called to dwell in the shadow of that truth. We know what awaits Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. We know that at the end of these 40 days and 40 nights minus Sundays, we will come to the shadow of the cross. While we Protestants find it easier and cleaner to skip that Good Friday part and look straight to the empty tomb, my Catholic in-laws, for instance, like to tell the story of how my father-in-law was responsible for hanging a giant crucifix in their new church sanctuary. It's huge. Our Catholic brothers and sisters are so comfortable with the cross that they hang Jesus on a 20-foot one from the center of the ceiling. Meanwhile, the rest of us resonate with Anne Lamott's confession. I don't have the right personality for the crucifixion, she writes. I'd like to skip ahead to the resurrection. In fact, I'd like to skip ahead to the resurrection vision of one of my Sunday school kids who drew a picture of the Easter bunny outside the tomb, everlasting life, and a basket full of chocolates. But Lent, good old long Lent, forces us to dwell in the shadow of that cross a little longer than we'd like. When we come to our passage, Jesus and his disciples have known one another for some time now. They've traveled together, eaten together, bunked together, and seen and heard some incredible things. Just verses before our reading, Jesus has asked these men, Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Messiah. And Peter's got it right. But the more Jesus explains, the less comfortable Peter becomes. Jesus goes on to explain the suffering he will undergo, predicting his own passion and death. Peter will have none of it. His Messiah came to end suffering, not to undergo it. Peter doesn't want to hear about a suffering Messiah. When the Israelites thought about the promised Messiah, they thought of a descendant of David, who, like David, would be a military commander and would return the nation to its former glory. The idea that the Messiah would suffer, let alone be crucified, was unimaginable. So we get why Peter is so upset. Nearly 2,000 years later, we still fall into the same narrow ways of thinking. 
As a culture, we equate greatness with physical strength, political power, and economic prosperity. In very recent history, I've known friends and family and church members to jeopardize real relationships all in the name of politics. We turn into the worst versions of ourselves in sad and selfish attempts to keep control. The amount of money spent in 2020 on attack ads alone and a year when we really could have used some kindness, it tells us something about ourselves. As one political science professor explained to his students, it turns out that in politics, you really can lift yourself up by tearing others down. What must Jesus think of all this? What must Jesus think of us? Jesus tells his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Peter couldn't take it. The idea that Jesus would suffer and that his triumph would not be through military might, but through vulnerability? It's simply too much. For us disciples today, we continue to be surprised and unnerved by what Jesus could mean. He is the Messiah who requires us to move from greatness to servanthood from selfishness to generosity, from the competition to cooperation, and from the narrowness of self-righteousness to the wideness of mercy. And if we want to follow this Messiah, it means going all the way to the cross. Strength and weakness, gaining by losing, that is the power of the cross. And it will always seem foolish to those who measure strength by finishing first, those who choose power over justice, and those who will stop at nothing to succeed. Scripture bears witness to a different God, a God who hears the cries of the poor and the immigrant, who defends the orphan and cares for the widowed. The God of Scripture comes among us as a vulnerable baby, born to poor young parents, forced to flee with his parents and live as a refugee. As a grown man, he associates with outcasts and compares the kingdom to receiving a little child. God is then executed as a criminal by the government and buried in a borrowed grave. God has moved into our vulnerability As United Methodist Bishop Kenneth Carter puts it, God has claimed our weakness as a resource for divine power. God has claimed our wounds as potential means of healing. By following a crucified Christ, we can face our own vulnerability. We can take up a cross with the full assurance that Christ has gone before us and now shares in that weight and pain. We often think of Jesus' death on the cross as a transactional event, that he lost his life in some grand exchange for our sins. 
But if you were a Roman citizen in first century Palestine, you knew what the cross was for. You'd seen it countless times. It was a brutal instrument of the state. It was a public way to shame and punish, and a way to strike fear and maintain control. The cross was a humiliating and painful symbol to people. Jesus died because powerful humans opposed his mission and the disruptions that mission brought to the established law and order. The cross happened because those in power couldn't, wouldn't make way for the coming of the kingdom. Jesus' prediction of his death and his description of what his followers would undergo for his sake was more than his disciples could handle. It was a future and a kingdom he would have to describe time and again, an upside-down world where one must lose one's life to save it, where God's thoughts are not our thoughts, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. While serving as a chaplain one summer, my friend Chris met a young mother whose five-month-old twins had been in the neonatal intensive care unit since birth. Every morning, the woman was there. Every evening, she was there, holding, praying, crying, waiting, pleading. Rituals of compassion and care. My friend, this novice chaplain, asked the woman, what gives you strength? With a look that showed wisdom beyond her 19 years, the mother simply responded, my babies, there's nothing I wouldn't do. That is greatness. The prediction the disciples were repelled by was what would become to known as truth. Jesus died on the cross. While we're quick to jump to that empty tomb, Mark asks us to dwell in the shadow for a few minutes more. For Mark, and for Jesus in Mark, there is no understanding of greatness or discipleship apart from the cross. Only in a shadow, do we see that God's power is not displayed by coercive force, but by wondrous, sacrificial love? Though we may have done it some other way, the God we worship chose the power of a cross to bring life to a dead world. The challenge of discipleship is to live as though it were true. Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.